do you like country music? Are you a, you a country music person? Did you know that all country songs fall into four categories? Four, four themes. This is a real thing. About six years ago, Peter Lewis is a writer, and, and he started a little research project. He started in 1965, and then he went to 1975 and 1985, 1995, 2005, 2015. That span every 10 years, and if I have all my math right, he took all the number one country hits of that year, and he took all the lyrics of all of those songs, and he put them into this little strategic scientific evaluation of the lyrics. And from that, he came out with four categories, four themes for every country song. Okay, here they are. Category number one, it's all over. That's, that's the theme. Category number two, it's not working out. Category number three, love and devotion. I mean, you know, just kind of all-encompassing, love and devotion. And number four, the right way to live. Now, he had a little color-coded chart with this, and it was fascinating to me, just as an interesting point, that in 1965, that last category was very, very low in the color. In other words, there were not a lot of song, country songs in 1965 about living right. I just think that's interesting. And that in 2015, there were a lot of songs about living right. I would think our minds would think the opposite would have been true, uh, but it's not. I just found that somewhat fascinating. I don't know what it means. It's just intriguing. But I would also say you could also add a category, a theme of country songs, just about crying, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of crying in country songs, right? I mean, just, just about everyone has some kind of reference to some kind of crying. I just pulled just a handful of titles of country songs about crying. Okay, here they are. Cowgirls Don't Cry. Cowboys Don't Cry. I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Don't cry, Joni. Don't come crying to me. I won't cry. I'll cry tomorrow. That, that's just a few, right? I mean, there's, there was a whole lot. But what about that last one? I'll cry tomorrow. Will we? Will we really, or, or do we live kind of in a culture that says, well, real men don't cry, and, and big girls don't cry, and, and crying is for sissies? Municipal philosopher Ron Swanson said, the only time you should cry is at the Grand Canyon and at funerals. No other time should be allowed. But the reality is, crying might also be a fantastic thing. In fact, holding in those tears may not be good. Holding in the tears could create something that's known as repressive coping. And repressive coping in certain scientific studies has been linked to things like hypertension, cardiovascular disease, a less resilient immune system, stress, anxiety, and other things. So it may be that a good cry every now and then is better than just an apple a day. So maybe we shouldn't be holding our tears in. We continue our series today, Rope of Hope, where we are journeying through Psalm 42, and we're seeking to discover this one all-important thing that we need if we're going to have hope for the most difficult moments in life. 
Our message today is crying for hope. But do we really, really need a good cry? Well, let's find out. Psalm 42, verse 3, the psalmist says this, My tears have been my food day and night. That's a lot of crying, especially for a bunch of men, because the title of Psalm 42 says that it was written by the sons of Korah. So I don't know how many sons there are, but there's at least one or maybe more of them that were writing a psalm about crying all day and crying all night. In fact, he says what? That his tears were actually his food. What does that mean? Well, have you ever been so overwhelmed, so sad, so frustrated, so despondent, so much in despair that you kind of lost your appetite? But that seems to be the picture here. Now, I have to be honest. This is the hardest part of, of the psalm for me to connect to. Not because I'm a crier. I'm a crier and I'm proud of it. But I don't know about this losing your appetite thing. I can't think of a single time that's ever happened in my life. Ever, you ever heard the phrase, you know, uh, uh, feed a cold and starve a fever? You know, that's not true. I just found this out in my most recent sickness because I did some studying. Scientific reports say that you should feed a cold and you should also feed a fever. In other words, you, you should just eat. That's what you should do. Uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, uh, we always carried crackers in the car early in the morning when I was driving her to work in those first few months because, you know, she, she had scheduled morning sickness. And what I mean by scheduled morning sickness was I always pulled over in the exact same spot on Highway 98 between Wake Forest and Durham. It was always the same exact spot right by the guardrail, not far after we had gotten down the highway. It was always the same spot. And I learned something in that moment every morning, and that is that even when you're sick, you're supposed to eat. You know, I mean, I, that was my lesson I learned every morning on the side of the road. I, so I always have food in the car with me just in case, you know. Uh, it, it's a good thing to eat. It's a, it's a good thing to feed yourself. Now, that doesn't mean be a glutton. It doesn't mean engage in the, in the sin of gluttony. After all, Paul, when he was writing to the church, he said whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we shouldn't do it in such a way to see how much we can get away with. Rather, we should do it in such a way that we remember that we get to be with God, that our relationship with God is the driving force behind everything that we do. So whether it's, it's hot dogs at the, at the corner gas station at the four-way stop, uh, whether it's uh, seaweed snacks in my office, uh, yeah, I, I've tried it all. You know, I'm, I'm all over the place when it comes to food. So, so eating is a, a good thing. It's a, it's a positive thing, but we always need to remember that when we're eating or drinking or whatever we're doing, we're doing it in such a way that we know I'm doing this because of the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. But we all know that there are those moments where maybe we aren't as hungry, where we're so overwhelmed. We, we can't eat, we can't drink, we can't think because we're so full of pain and frustration and despair. That seems to be where we're finding the psalmist. Can't eat, can't sleep. His pillow is soaking wet from his tears. He's completely overwhelmed. Now, is that kind of crying a sign of weakness? Absolutely not. Crying and tears are throughout the Bible. 
In fact, if we make the connection with country songs about crying, to, to borrow a line from musicologist B.A. Mandrell, the Bible was country before country was cool. Okay? There, there's always been crying. There's always been weeping. There's always been tears. When Jesus heard about his friend Lazarus dying, the Bible says he wept. In other words, there was something about the value of his friend, the value of his friend's existence, and now the loss of his friend that moved Jesus to tears. In other words, Jesus set the example for all of us that life on this earth, life in God's world that he created, it has value. And the people and the places and the situations and the circumstances of life, they have value, so much value that sometimes it moves us to tears. Crying is not a sign of weakness. And there is a, a type of crying that's unique to Christianity. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Brogop describes it this way. To cry is human, to lament is Christian. You may remember that quote from our series last year in Lamentations. And, and Mark also goes on to give an approach to this type of lamenting, crying that's, that's super helpful. And it goes like this. Turn to God, complain to God, ask God, trust God. Big kids should probably cry a little more. Meaning Christians should cry a little more, lament a little more, mourn a little more over our personal sin, but also over the presence of sin and evil in our country and in our world. But if we're honest, more often than not, what we really do is we get angry, we get frustrated, we get afraid, we get worried, and we rant and we rail, but we never weep. We get angry and we fuss and we grumble and we whine and we complain, but we don't weep. We don't take tears to God. But the whole of the Bible commands us that first and most, whatever it is that's going on in life, that we take it first and most to God, and that includes our tears. We're supposed to take our tears to God. Someone has said that weeping is not weakness in the life of a Christian. And in fact, Jesus proves that to be true because Jesus cried. So we take our tears, and for that matter, we take all the other stuff, and we turn to God. We complain to God. We ask God, and we trust God. That needs to be our approach to everything in life, but especially the most difficult moments. And why? Why should we turn to God? Why should we take our tears to God? Why should we have anything to do with God when everything is falling apart? One day Jesus was teaching, and he said this to his disciples, Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed and happy and content to be envied are people that know how to grieve and mourn and weep. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little bit crazy, right? Happy mourners, happy grievers, happy weepers? 
what in the world is this talking about? Is that, does that mean Jesus is saying, hey, when something awful happens in life, just, just laugh it off and be happy? No. Jesus here in Matthew 5 is primarily talking about sin. He's talking about mourning over sin. He's talking about being overwhelmed with sin. Not just feeling bad about your sin, but, but grieving your sin, weeping over your sin. And he's really building off what he had said in the sentence before. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed and happy is the person that has a humble heart. Blessed and happy and content are the people that understand that they will not get into heaven just because they're a member of a church or just because they have a nice family, or just because they have a college degree, or, or just because they work really hard at their job, or just because they have cash, or, or credit cards, or little gold bars in a firebox at their house. No, blessed and happy and content is the person that understands that they are lost and without hope in this world unless God rescues and redeems them. And for that matter, blessed and happy and content is the person that understands they are lost in the world to come unless God rescues and redeems them. Blessed and happy and content is the man or woman or the boy and girl that understands how to weep and mourn and grieve over their own sin and over sin in the world. How are we doing it grieving and weeping over sin? The language that Jesus uses here is not just like finally apologizing on the 63rd time that somebody confronts you. The language here is, is much, much deeper. Think of it this way. If I have someone in, in my family or, or a close friend that dies, I'm going to, to mourn and grieve. I'm, I'm going to weep in some way. I'm, I'm going to be uh, distraught and in despair in some way over that loss. And that is good and right. That is how I should respond. However, if I do not grieve and mourn and have despair over my sin, then my math will be off. You see, it is actually more important for me to grieve over my sin than it is for me to grieve over someone that I have lost. Because if I don't grieve over my sin, then it very likely might highlight to me that my profession of faith is not a true possession of faith. Meaning if I don't understand what it means to hate my sin, to grieve over my sin, to feel bad about my sin long before someone says anything to me, then at the very least it seems to be stirring a question in my mind, well, do I actually know God? Have I actually been saved? And if that's the case, then that means that I would never see God and never enjoy his heaven forever. So that makes mourning over sin kind of a big deal. That makes weeping over sin kind of a big deal. But see, we are bombarded in the opposite direction. The, the commercials of this world, I'm not talking about TV, I'm talking about anywhere we're at, whether we're at school or work or at home or, or even at church, we hear commercials from people and from philosophies in every way of life 
that they say things that, that kind of fall into, into these categories. Something like this. Blame your worries on somebody else. It's not your fault. It, it was somebody else. Excuse your worries with something else. Oh, well, the only reason that happened was because of this. You know? Oh, I was a total jerk because I hadn't had a Snickers yet. You know? We, we, we excuse it and we, we blame it on something else. Or, or this one. Forget your worries and just do something else. You know? And, and what those are saying to us is this. Hey, don't worry about sin. It's not you. It's not you. It's always someone else. It's not you. So don't worry about it. You know? Just, just go play golf and forget about it. Just go shopping and forget about it. Just grab a Snickers and forget about it. Or just blame it on somebody else. We've got plenty of politicians and pastors and teachers and, and neighbors and everybody else. Just blame it. Blame it on the coach. Blame it on somebody else. But don't ever pay attention to your sin. I'm going to tell you this. That might get you a long way in this world, but that will get you nowhere with God. Nowhere. You see, the, the truth of how God relates to us is completely different. God is calling us to bring our worst, our most terrible thing, and just to come to him. Not to ignore it, not to excuse it, and not to act like it doesn't exist, but take all of the gross, ugly, dirty stuff and say, God, here, help. And God says, I, I will, that, that's what I do. Now, I don't know if the psalmist is crying over sin here. I, I don't know if it's sin that's happening in his life. Maybe, maybe he has lost someone. Maybe something terrible is happening in his life. But I do know this. He is taking his tears and he's turning to God. He's taking whatever it is that's happening in him and he's turning to God. And why is he doing that? Here's why. Because God will not turn you away. God will not look at your tears and say, get out of here, man. That's not how it works. In fact, King David, he said that God is near to the brokenhearted. God desires and longs to, to be there. And remember those last words from Jesus back in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The reason that we turn to God with our tears is because whether our tears are over brokenness from our sin or whether we're just brokenhearted, God, God himself, he, he doesn't subcontract it out. God himself promises to be our comfort. He promises us to comfort in our most difficult moments, in our darkest moments. It's what he promises to do. King David was a king of a great nation. He was a soldier. He was in battle. He, he killed people. But he cried. He cried a lot. And, and oftentimes he was crying over his sin. Jeremiah was a, a strong-worded, forceful prophet of God. And he cried over his sin. He cried over the sin of the people. The Apostle Paul was, was one of the most... Uh, influential young politicians in the world and then he got saved and he became arguably the most influential human ever and he cried over sin we've already noted that Jesus the son of God he wept he, he cried over sin he didn't cry over his own sin though right because he didn't have any 
but he cried over sin. He, he cried over my sin. He cried over your sin. He, he cried and wept in such a way that his desire was to honor God and rescue us. This is who he is. This is what he does. In other words, some of the most real men ever cried over sin. So real men do cry, and big girls do cry, and it's not a sissy thing to cry. It's not a a sissy thing to to weep over sin because there is this sense, (coughs) excuse me, that that weeping, that, that, that discomfort, that that mourning, that grieving actually creates a system of release. Release to what? Well, a release to the comfort of God. Listen, you can go get the most comfortable mattress in the world. I mean, with all the right numbers and the best memory foam and everything else in the world, and you can still not sleep a lick. Why? Because that mattress cannot shut your mind down. It just can't. The the best mattress in the world, the most comfortable mattress in the world is no match for the stress and strain and despair that we face sometimes in life. But Jesus, he he gives us this, this one incredible promise that if we can grieve over our sin, God will comfort us. God himself, the God of the universe, The God of the universe will hug your heart. He'll hug your mind. The the God of the universe will comfort your soul. How? Well, the Bible gives numerous ways that God will comfort us. I'm just going to kind of gather a few hundred of those into, into one sentence. I think one of the deepest ways that God comforts us when we are grieving and mourning over sin or just brokenhearted, is he whispers to us with great authority, one day there will be no more sin and one day you'll be with me. And not just one day, I think God in his kindness says one day soon, there will be no more sin And one day soon, you will be with me. I've shared these words from Jeff Thomas many times before here. It's his reflection on on what it means to be the Lord's, what it it means to, sorry, Eddie, I got a cough. All right, I'm good. Man, so the other night, so I, you know, I had COVID, I don't know, this is my 17th time with COVID, whatever it was, three or four weeks ago. And, and I, I went, I was like, hey, Karen, I was like, how long is this cough supposed to last? So she was, she's still sleeping in the guest room because I'm just still coughing. And so she texts me, she goes, the latest strain, it says it could last four weeks to four months. Well, could you have texted me that yesterday, tomorrow maybe? Not like right now, I'm trying to go to bed, hacking up a lung. <clears throat> Sorry, I think I usually only have one time of sermon, so I think I'm good. This is what Jeff Thomas says about what it means to be the Lord's. We are the Lord's. I know of no softer pillow at night for anyone than that. 
I, I never get tired of hearing those words. I think Jeff is, I don't know, in his, in his mid-80s now, maybe, maybe even late 80s, I don't know, pastored the same church in Wales for 50 years. And, and there's something about those words from him that just, just always grab me. And in this moment, in this psalm, they remind me, hey, you're the Lord's. So take your tears and take your grief over sin. Take your hard, difficult stuff and you turn to him and you complain to him and you ask him and you trust him. The psalmist is overwhelmed with tears. But that's not all he was overwhelmed with. Listen to the next part of verse three. While they say to me all day long, where's your God? He, he's crying so much, he's lost his appetite, he can't even eat. And now his family and his friends and maybe even complete strangers are like, what's your problem, man? Suck it up. Where's your God? What kind of God would let you go through something like this? I mean, if, if this is what your God is, is allowing to happen in your life, your God, your God can't be real. If people who are normally around you would say when they look at the, the attitude of your life, they never see any joy or trust in God. Again, that would be a good time for you to say, God, is my profession of faith a true possession of faith? However, it is also true that there are seasons of darkness in the Christian life. And sometimes those seasons last a long time. The darkness doesn't immediately run away. And in those seasons of darkness, there are people just like the psalmist had. There are people around you that will act like they have the answers to everything. There are people around you that, that think that the only thing you really need is just to hear their favorite Bible verse. Oh, you just need my life verse and everything in your life will be better. There are people that, that will say to you, well, look, I'm just gonna bring you a casserole and some pie and that will make everything better. And it absolutely will in every single way. Yeah, that one, that one works. There will be people that say to you, oh, you know, what you really need to do is just, you need to get on some stronger meds or, or you need to get a new pet or you need to get a new hobby. And there may be a place for all of those things, but there will also be somebody that says, hey, where's your God? Where, where's your God in the midst of this? If, if this is what's happening, I mean, does your God even exist? What do we do in those moments? How do, how do we handle life when our pain and despair is so much that our tears are our food and we're surrounded by people saying, hey, where's your God? Because that's the psalmist, right? The psalmist, he can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't stop crying. But what does he do? Well, he does what we need to do. He makes a choice. The choir saying it, I choose Jesus. He makes a choice. And what is the choice he makes? Well, he said it at the beginning of this conversation. Listen back in verse one. My soul pants for you, God. In his darkness, in his pain, in his grief, he has already made the choice. I am going after God. 
I'm going to turn to him. I'm going to complain to him. I'm going to ask him, and I'm going to trust God. He is panting after God. He knew the direction he needed to go. There was no confusion, and he made that choice before, during, and after his darkness. We have a, a fantastic weekday preschool here at the church, and I think it was either earlier this week or last week, uh, two of our four-year-olds got in a little argument. They're normally buddies, uh, but they, they weren't getting along that day and ha- having, a little, having a little go at it. And one of them finally said, hey, can we just get to the I'm sorry part? That's, that's a true four-year-old friend right there. You know, can we just get to the I'm sorry part? When you're overwhelmed with fear, when you're overwhelmed with frustration, when you're overwhelmed with despair, with, with grief, with, with anger, when tears are your food, when people mock your faith, or when you are mocking your own faith, in that moment, make the decision right now, today, that in the darkness, you're gonna make the choice to say something to yourself. And this is what you're gonna say. Hey, self, can we just go ahead and get to the turning to God part? Just get there. Because you know that's where you need to go, so, so let's just get there. Let that be your sermon that you say and preach to yourself. Hey, self, can we just get to the turning to God part? And why? Why should you do that? Because when you turn to God, you'll discover for the first time or maybe rediscover what it means to be his. And if you are his, no matter what the tears are, no matter what the mocking is, no matter what the anger, frustration, fear, worry, despair may be, if you are his, there is no softer pillow than that. Let us turn to God.